So, I have this serious problem with Christmas presents. Don't worry, no soapbox is here. Now see, the problem is actually with me. <laughs> I hint at the gifts, you know? I spill the beans and I ruin the surprise every year. But I can't help it. I love it so much. Mommy, I need you! I'm coming, sweetie! Spoiling the surprise kind of reminds me how God works. He likes to hint at big things. Like the way he hinted about that very first Christmas gift. All those years ago, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. And the virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son. And he shall be called do you Emmanuel. Emmanuel. Yeah, he was preparing the gift. All right. God packed up the greatest gift that the world had ever seen. Not even he could keep it to himself. He gets me. And God didn't just let the surprise slip once. No, he let the cat out of the bag nearly 300 times in the Old Testament. We call them prophecies. But here's the big difference between God's prophecies and just spoiling a surprise. One is giving the gift early, but you don't get to open it. And the other is God giving us a gift of hope while we wait for Jesus to come. <laughs> Do you see it? He wasn't telling us a secret. He was making us a promise. Because we humans, three chapters into the creation story, we managed to mess it all up. Yeah, we needed saving. Desperately. So, God kept sending us hope through his prophets and messengers. And that hope was the gift of his son, the Messiah. And there will never be a greater gift than Jesus. And the cool thing is that hope isn't over. He promises to come again and take us all home. So the gift is just right there. The question is, will you accept it? Good morning. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 2 this morning. We are beginning a new series as we enter the Christmas season called The Wonder of Christmas. And leading up to Christmas, we're going to discover how Jesus, being the wonder of Christmas, is our hope, is our joy, is our love, and is our peace. And part of the wonder of Christmas is how God chose to give us much-needed hope to his people through the miraculous birth of his son, Jesus Christ. And to understand the hope that comes through Jesus, we have to understand that there is a difference between biblical hope and worldly hope. You see, worldly hope is wishful thinking. It's wishing that something would happen. Now, growing up, Coming in the mail sometime in October was something called the Wish Book. I don't know if any of you remember the Wish Book from Sears. My brother and I couldn't wait till we got the Wish Book in the mail. Because the moment we got that Wish Book, we started making a list of what we wanted for Christmas. And our list wasn't short. There was probably something from every page on our list. 
You know what that was called? That was called wishful thinking because we hardly got anything we ever put on our list. But it was neat to go through that catalog and just to think about what we wish we would have and we couldn't wait for Christmas to come because we were hoping, we were wishing that we would receive the things that we asked for. But you see, biblical hope is not wishful thinking. Biblical hope is confident expectation. Biblical hope is knowing that something is going to happen. It's knowing that you can count on something with certainty. And I'm sure like many of you, Christmas is my favorite time of year. I love the decorations except for the untangling of lights. And one of the best things they ever came up with was pre-lit Christmas trees. Saved a lot of marriages, a lot of families, and a lot of frustration. I love Christmas music. I love shopping for gifts. I love Christmas food, probably too much, and snacks. But one of my favorite things to do during Christmas is watch Christmas movies. And when you think about Christmas movies, the characters are always hoping for something. They're always wishing for something to happen. The movie Home Alone. Kevin is hoping his family disappears. And then when they do, he hopes they return. In the movie Elf, one of my favorite Christmas movies, Buddy is hoping to find his family, and through his journey, he not only finds his family, he helps save Christmas. And then probably the best Christmas movie of all, The Christmas Story. Ralphie was hoping for an official Red Ryder carbon action 200-shot range model air rifle with a compass in the stock. And he was constantly told by his parents, by his teachers, you'll shoot your eye out, kid. And then there's the movie Jingle All the Way with Howard, played by Arnold Schwarzenegger, wandering around the stores on Christmas Eve, making a futile attempt to fulfill his son's hope of getting the hottest Christmas toy of the season, Turbo Man. There's nothing like waiting until the last minute to find that perfect gift. And maybe this Christmas you are hoping to find that perfect gift. You're, you're wishing to receive that perfect gift. And Joni and I can relate to hoping to find that perfect gift. It was Thanksgiving 2008, and we were in Alabama visiting my parents for Thanksgiving. And then used to be when, when Black Friday shopping was done on Friday, and you got up at 4 a.m. and hit the stores all throughout the day on Friday. But on Thursday, Thanksgiving Day, we looked forward to getting the paper because it had all the ads. And we noticed in the ads that Walmart had a basketball goal for $99, regularly $250, $300. So we got excited. We were going to get to Walmart early and get this basketball goal. We got to Walmart about 5.30 a.m. We walked around the store hoping to find this goal. No luck. We went to the service desk asking if they had any in stock. We knew the answer before they went. The answer was no. But as we were leaving the store, we just happened to see this basketball goal sitting at the end of a register, unattended with nobody around. We took it and ran as fast as we could with Joni leading the way, knocking people over, trying to get out of the store without getting caught. I'm kidding. We didn't do that. We wanted to. But we reluctantly asked the cashier if that goal belonged to anybody. To our surprise, she said, that goal's been sitting there a while. I don't know who it belongs to. You can have it if you want it. So we took it, and then we ran out of the store after we paid for it. But we couldn't believe it. Our wishful thinking became a reality, and we were excited. 
And we put it in the back of our Toyota Sienna van, covered up with a blanket, and drove from Mobile, Alabama to Richmond, Kentucky without our boys even noticing it. Not sure how that happened. But because we found the perfect gift we were looking for, because we didn't want our boys to be disappointed, our hope was fulfilled. But you know, the world is desperately looking for hope. But hope does not depend on our circumstances. Hope does not depend on what we have or don't have. Our hope does not depend on others. Our hope is not in family. Our hope is not giving or receiving that perfect gift. Our hope is not in our wealth or our education or our status or our doctors or our health or our government. Our ultimate hope, our confident expectation is found in only one person, and that person is Jesus Christ. Our hope depends on and is only found in Jesus, who Scripture says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then John 1.14 says the word Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us for what purpose? Of bringing us hope that God had promised. And because Jesus is the greatest and most perfect gift that has ever been given and that ever can be received our hope is fulfilled. And this morning I want you to see why we can have hope in Jesus. Why we can count on him with confidence and with certainty, and it's much more than wishful thinking. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 2 and verses 14 to 17, and then in a minute we'll turn to Hebrews chapter 9 and look at verses 26 to 28. But Hebrews 2, 14 to 17, the writer of Hebrews says this, Now since the children have flesh and blood in common, he also shared in these, So that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil. And free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. For it is clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. Therefore he had to be like his brothers in every way, that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. The first thing I want to share with you why Jesus is our hope is because God is always faithful to his promises. You see, as was shared in the video we just watched, throughout the Old Testament, as the lady said in the video, God wasn't telling us a secret. He was giving us a promise. He was giving us a promise of hope since we were in such desperate need of a Savior. And hundreds of years before Jesus fulfilled hundreds of prophecies, that appointed to his initial arrival that first Christmas, God placed hope in the hearts of his people. And the arrival of the centuries-old promised hope, the Messiah, Jesus, it happened one night in a cave that was used to house animals on the outskirts of Bethlehem at just the right time. Galatians 4, 4 says, When the set time had fully come, in other words, when God's ordained time had come, God sent his Son Jesus, born of a woman. In the Old Testament, there are over 300 prophecies that that foretold and promised the coming of the Messiah. And each prophecy was a promise of hope about what God would do one day for His people. And each prophecy was a promise of a coming Savior who would deliver them from their sin. And the promise of the coming of the Messiah started in Genesis 3. After the fall of man, Genesis 3.15, which has been called the the Proto-Evangelium, which means the first gospel. 
It's the first promise of a Savior. And it contains two messianic prophecies. And it points to the birth of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. Look at Genesis 3.15 real quick. This is the punishment that God was giving to Satan for his part in causing Adam and Eve to sin. He tells him this. He says, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. In a minute, we'll look deeper into that. But God's plan of hope centered on a person who would be a man who would enter the human race by being born of a virgin and who would do battle with Satan. God's plan of hope centered on a specific person who would be a man named Jesus. And by the way, the plan of Jesus' coming was put in place before the creation of the world in Ephesians 1, 3, and 5. Let me turn there real quick. Ephesians 1, 3, and 5, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us to be adopted through Jesus Christ for Himself according to His favor and will, to the praise of His glorious grace that He favored us with in the Beloved, the Beloved being Jesus. And then in 1 Peter 1, 18-20, Scripture says this, For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from the fathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without defect or blemish. Here's the key. He was destined before the foundation of the world, but was revealed at the end of times for you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. God's plan to redeem us from our sin was promised long before the foundation of the world. And in Hebrews 2.14, he says, Now since the children have flesh and blood in common, he also shared in these. And then in verse 17, he says, Therefore he had to be like his brothers in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. Philippians 2.7 says that Jesus was made in human likeness, that he was found in appearance as a man. And the rest of the Old Testament is the continual progression of God revealing His plan to counteract what happened in the Garden of Eden. And we see throughout the New Testament that of who, who this Messiah will be. He says He will be a Jew. He'll be the son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He'll come from the tribe of Judah. He'll be a descendant of David. Isaiah 7, 14 says He'll be born of a virgin. Micah 5, 2 says He will be born in Bethlehem. And when you take all these prophecies together, we have an incredible picture of the promised Messiah. And who could fill all these qualifications? Who could fulfill all these prophecies? There is only one person who could fulfill every single prophecy. And that person is the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And when you look at the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1, it is astounding to see who was in Jesus' lineage. And you would wonder, how in the world could Jesus come from a family like that? It starts with Abraham and ends with the birth of Christ. And there are people that are messed up. 
You have Abraham who lied about his wife. You had Isaac who lied about Rebekah. You had Judah who slept with his daughter-in-law Tamar thinking she was a shrine prostitute. You had David who committed adultery and murder. You had Solomon who had hundreds of wives. You had Manasseh who was the epitome of evil as one of the kings of Judah and sacrificed the children of Judah to pagan gods. There were four women. There was Tamar who slept with Judah, Rahab who was a prostitute, Ruth who was from Moab, Bathsheba who committed adultery with David. And three of those women were Gentiles. And every one of these are in the line that leads to Jesus, the promised Messiah. And you thought your family was messed up. You see, when we look at the fulfillment of all these prophecies, we can learn a couple of things. We can learn that God keeps his promises no matter what. God has never made a promise that he has not kept. And because God is a promise keeper, we can place our hope in him. We can trust him with confidence and with certainty, knowing that what he says is going to happen is going to happen. We can trust that God keeps his word. We also learn that God uses flawed people to keep his promises. He uses imperfect people because that's all he has to work with. And everything that happened before the birth of Jesus was meant to lead to Jesus. And it did. Just as God promised. Just as God planned. And it is credible to think that God orchestrated hundreds of years of history to bring his son, the promised Messiah, into the world at just the right time. And this display of God's faithfulness, it should cause us to place our hope and to place our confidence in God. Because what God had promised, he has done. And because what God has promised, he will continue to do. The second thing I want to say is we can place our hope in Jesus because he came to fight our enemy. Hebrews 2.14, again, it says, Now since the children have flesh and blood in common, he shared in thee, so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is, the devil. 1 John 3.8 says, The one who commits sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the devil's works. Jesus was born to give us hope. For what reason? To destroy the plans of our enemy, Satan. You see, if sin would never have occurred, there would have never been a reason for Jesus to come. But from the moment sin entered the world in the Garden of Eden, through the work of Satan in the lives of Adam and Eve, we needed a Savior. We needed someone to come and rescue us from our sin. And Satan chose to pick a fight with God as his plan was and still is to steal and kill and destroy the lives of God's creation, those who were made in the image of God. And you would have thought Satan would have learned his lesson because already he lost once when God kicked him out of heaven because of his rebellion against God. So what would make him think that this time would be any different? Maybe it was pride. But maybe it was knowing that he couldn't win, but he could make us lose. You see, if you don't put your hope in Jesus, you lose. And once again, Satan chose to pick a fight with the wrong person. Have you ever picked a fight with the wrong person or know someone who did? 
In high school, I was a freshman and a senior picked a fight with me. He didn't know what he was doing messing with a 100-pound freshman. It was in Spanish class of all classes. I happened to sit in the senior seat. He didn't like it very much, so he grabbed me by the shirt, a shirt that my cousin had just gotten me from Greece. So he grabbed me by the shirt. I lifted out of the chair, and he ripped my shirt. I know it was a sad day. I told the teacher, got him in trouble, and he said, you'll pay for this. So I was walking back from lunch one day to get to my class, and he happened to be standing outside the door I needed to go into. And I knew I was in trouble. And so he started to to grab me by the neck and punch me, and it was like a movie scene. Out of nowhere came my friend Kyle. Kyle was a senior on the football team. Kyle got that senior around the neck, put him in a headlock, punched him right between the eyes with his his hand that had this class ring on it, busted his lip wide open. He went to the bathroom crying, two teeth knocked out. Guess who won? I did. (laughs) Why? He picked the fight with the wrong person because I had Kyle on my side. You know what? Satan picked the wrong fight with us. Why? Because we have Jesus on our side. And that, I, that kid never got in trouble, Kyle did, because the teachers didn't like the kid that picked on me anyway, so they let it go. And he never messed with me again, and neither did his friends. And I strutted around school like I had won the battle. But thank, thank God for Kyle, or I might not be standing here today, but, but Kyle saved my life, saved me in that moment. But you know what? Jesus came to save us when we were in despair as well. And thank God for Jesus. We needed a Savior. And God had enough, and he sent his son Jesus on a rescue mission. Matthew 1.21 says, An angel appeared to Joseph as he was contemplating what to do with Mary. And the angel told him this, She will give birth to a son, and you are to call his name Jesus. For it is he who will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus is the Hebrew word Yeshua, and it means the one who saves. And through Jesus' life and Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection, Jesus not only fought our enemy Satan, he destroyed our enemy just as God said he would in Genesis 3.15. You see, in Genesis 3.15, which we just read, as God was giving Satan his punishment for his part in bringing sin into the world, he told him this, He told Satan, he will crush your head. That is, the seed of the woman, Jesus will crush the serpent's head. But then he said, then he said this, you will strike his heel. That is, Satan will bite the heel of the woman's seed. Satan will strike a blow. But the blow that he will receive in return will be much more devastating, will be much more detrimental. How did Satan strike the heel of Jesus through the crucifixion? through the death of Jesus on the cross. And Satan thought he had won. And Jesus may have been down, but he was not out. God had one last move. God had the final word. And just as God promised Jesus through his resurrection, he crushed the head of Satan, defeating him forever. Game over. You see, the purpose of the incarnation of Christ, the reason Jesus had to assume the same human nature as us and become fully human and fully God was so that through his death 
He might break the power of Satan who held the power of death. That's what Hebrews says. He came to break the power of Satan who held the power of death. But in order for Jesus to die for us and conquer death, hell, the grave, and Satan, he had to become one of us. And Jesus just didn't come to fight our enemy. He came to destroy our enemy. And through the cross and the resurrection, Jesus destroyed our enemy, Satan, by giving us victory over sin and death and hell and the grave. And even though Satan is still active in the world, and 1 Peter 5.8 says he's prowling around like a roaring lion seeking who may devour. And even though evil still exists because Satan exists, but because of Jesus, he is now a defeated enemy and his destiny is already determined. You see, what Jesus started, he will finish one day. As Revelation 20.10 says, that Satan will be thrown into the lake of burning sulfur and we can place our hope in Jesus because he was sent to save us to rescue us from the destruction of our enemy Satan and Jesus did what he was sent to do and because God is for us not even Satan can be against us we needed hope we needed rescue and our hope has a name and hope's name is Jesus the third thing I want to share is we can have hope in Jesus because this is a little different than what's in your bulletin as I was finishing up my message I decided to change that third point he came to free us from the fear of death and the power of sin Jesus came to free us from the power of the fear of death and the power of sin let me read verses 15 and 16 it says after he was uh It says, he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. For it is clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. Not only did Jesus come to fight our enemy, Scripture makes it very clear he came to free those who were held in slavery through the fear of death. You see, because Jesus has disarmed, because he has broken the power of Satan, Jesus now holds the key of of death in his powerful hand. Death is an instrument of Satan that has been overcome by Christ. Yes, we're still subject to death. As Hebrews 9, 27 says, This is a point unto man once to die, and then the judgment. And death can be scary because of the consequence of sin. Because as Romans 6, 23 says, The payment of sin is death. But because of the birth and the life and the death of Jesus, we do not have to fear death. Those who put their faith in Christ, we are no longer slaves to death. And in our lives, Satan can no longer use death as a fear tactic. Satan can no longer use death as a means of intimidation. And Satan's ability to wield power, the power of death over us, was broken by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, through the death of Jesus, because Jesus came to conquer death, we are free from the power of death because we are free from the power of sin. Jesus freed us from the payment and the power of sin by making the payment of our sin on the cross. And because of what Jesus came to do, our sin debt has been paid. And we who have put our faith and trust 
in Jesus Christ no longer have to fear death. We no longer have to be scared of death as Jesus came to put death to death. And because sin no longer has a hold on us, death doesn't either. And we can enjoy abundant life. And we can have eternal life. In John 10.10, Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. Abundant life is life that is filled with the hope and the joy of the Lord, realizing that Jesus is our greatest source of comfort and strength, that He is our hope when life looks hopeless. And this is exactly who Jesus is and what He does. He gives us abundant life. He gives us hope. And it's because the name that he was given also describes this abundant and eternal life. Not only was Joseph told to name him Jesus, he said, You will call him Emmanuel in Matthew 1.23, as was prophesied in Isaiah 7.15. And what does Emmanuel mean? It means God with us, as we sang this morning. And why is that important? You see, the presence of God in our life is sufficient for our life. Jesus is our hope when everything else looks hopeless. And the reason Jesus came, the reason Jesus was born, was to die for what reason? So we might live. Jesus came to give his life so we can have life, so we can have abundant and eternal life. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but look at the rest of the verse. The gift of God is what? Eternal life. How? Through Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 2.16, which we just read, it says that Jesus didn't come to help the angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. Who's Abraham's offspring? We are. Why did we need help? Because we were in a situation called sin. And that word help is powerful word. It has vivid imagery. It means that someone is rescuing another by taking hold of them and lifting them out of a dangerous situation. When I was in high school and I was on a canoe trip with my, with my youth ministry, we were going down this river and we started swimming, put our canoes to the side and started swimming. I got caught in a current and I was being carried downstream and I was, I was fearful, I was scared. Because I didn't know what was going to happen, what was going to take me under. And I started yelling for help and one of my friends... He swam to me, and he, he was a very strong young man. And he pulled me up out of that water. He grabbed me, and he pulled me up out of that current and, and took me to safety. That's the idea of what this word means. It means to be pulled out of a dangerous situation. It means to be grabbed hold of and rescued. And what did Jesus do? He helped us by grabbing hold of us. He rescued from a dangerous situation. He rescued us from the dangerous current of sin. He rescued us from spiritual and eternal death. How? By his death on the cross. Hebrews 9, 26 and 27. If you turn over to Hebrews 9, 26 and 27, the writer of Hebrews continues this line of thought when he says this. He says, Otherwise he would have had to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. But now he has appeared one time at the end of the ages. What was the end of the ages? The appointed time that Jesus came. For what purpose? For the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as appointed for people to die once and after this judgment. 
So also the Messiah, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. The writer of Hebrews makes it very clear that Jesus came to deal decisively with sin. That Jesus came to do away with sin, to abolish sin once and for all, so sin would no longer have power over our lives. And his one-time offering of himself, his one-time giving his life for us, it was sufficient and final for all of history, past, present, and future. Jesus doesn't have to ever die again. He died once, and that's all he needed to do. His death is sufficient for our salvation. Jesus became one of us to save all of us who would call on his name. Jesus came to free us and fulfill us with what he created us to become and enjoy, which was abundant life in him and him alone. And because his name is the only name in heaven and earth by which people can be saved, because there is is no other way of salvation, there is no other way to have abundant life and eternal life. If you're looking for abundant life, if you're looking for hope, if you're looking for eternal life, if you're looking for some other way to be saved, you're not going to find it. Jesus is it. His death was all sufficient. And sin and death no longer have power over our lives. But Christ does. And the strongholds of pride, the stronghold of fear, The stronghold of greed and selfishness and lust and addiction have been broken. And because we are no longer enslaved to sin and have victory over our sin, we are to offer ourselves as willing servants, as slaves to Christ, who freed us from the fear of death and the power of sin, and who continues to work in us to make us like him. Jesus is not only our helper. Jesus is our hope the fourth thing I want to say is he came to forgive us of our sin you see Jesus only came to free us from the fear of death and the power of sin he came to offer us forgiveness of our sin by making atonement by making the payment of our sin if you go back to Hebrews 2 verse 17 it says therefore he had to be like his brothers in every way in other words he had to become like one of us so we could become like him so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Remember, Jesus means the one who saves. Jesus came to save us from our sin by giving his life for us so we could be forgiven of our sin. And in order for Jesus to make atonement, to pay for our sins, and to be a merciful and faithful high priest, it was necessary for him to become like a And one of the main functions of the high priest, it was to make sacrifices for the sins of the people on the day of atonement. And they sacrificed animals to atone for the sins of the people and not themselves. However, Jesus, as our faithful and our merciful high priest, he just did not offer a sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins. He became the sacrifice for our sin. He suffered. He shed his blood for us. He took our sin upon himself so we could be forgiven of our sin and receive the righteousness of God. What Jesus did, he fulfilled the words of John the Baptist in John 1.29 when he said, This is the Lamb of God who was born 
who came to take away the sin of the world. You see, without the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, we could not be forgiven of our sin. And this idea of atonement, it has to do with the, with the idea of the restoration of a relationship marred by sin. And our relationship with God was marred by sin in Genesis. We didn't get any three chapters into the book of the Bible before we're marred by sin. And the only way we can restore our relationship with God, by having our sins forgiven, by having our sin debt paid, is through Jesus Christ. The atonement of Jesus, it does two things. It encompasses the removal of sin, which is called expiation. It also allows us to avoid the wrath of God. You see, that's called propitiation. Through the sacrifice of Jesus, he removed our sin. And he also appeased God by taking the wrath that we deserved upon himself. The sacrifice of Jesus, which was why he came, was not only to take away our sin and to make us righteous before God. It was to deliver us from judgment. Without Jesus coming and giving his life, we would have to pay the penalty for our sin. We would have to face the judgment of God for our sin. But Hebrews 9, 27 and 28, let me read that again. It says this, It was appointed for people to die once and after this judgment, so also the Messiah, having been offered once to bear the sins of many. Our only hope of having our sins forgiven our only hope of receiving abundant and eternal life and avoiding God's wrath is putting our faith and trust in Jesus and accepting what he did on the cross as payment for our sin. By taking the punishment for our sin, as Colossians 2, 13 and 14 says, Jesus canceled the debt that each of us owes God by nailing it to the cross. And Scripture makes it very clear that we are going to die one. And what happens after you die is determined by your response to Jesus now as there is a price to pay for sin. And you can either choose to receive Jesus' payment for your sin and receive eternal life. Or you can choose to pay for your sin yourself and face the judgment of God for rejecting Jesus by being eternally separated from the presence of God in a place called hell. You have the choice, as the video said, to take the greatest gift that Jesus has given you and receive it and allow Jesus to become part of your life. You see, Jesus only came to save us from the power of sin. He came to save us from the penalty of our sin by paying the penalty for us. And this is why Jesus is the hope and the wonder of Christmas. The last thing I want to say is he came to fasten our future glory. Hebrews 9, 28, the last part, is after Jesus, after Scripture says, it's appointed a man wants to die, and the reason the Messiah, Jesus, came was to bear the sins of many. It says this, He will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Since Jesus is appearing a second time, it stands to reason he had to appear one time before. And he did. And that is the proof of his incarnation. His first appearing was when he took on flesh and came as a baby in a manger. 
But now, if he's appearing a second time, it also means something else. It means that when Jesus was crucified, that he did not stay dead. It means that Jesus is alive, and this is proof of his resurrection. And Jesus is alive, and that is our hope. And unlike his first coming, his second coming is not to make atonement for sin. His second coming, it says, is to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10, Paul wrote, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivered us from the wrath to come. You see, for those of us who put our faith in Christ, the second coming of Jesus is, is not to rescue us from our sin, but to rescue us from eternal judgment so we can enjoy the promised eternal inheritance of heaven as our eternal home. Because Jesus came, because he lived a sinless life, because he was the perfect sacrifice, because he died in our place and paid the penalty for our sin and rose again, he fastened, he secured our future glory. And we have a living hope because we have a heavenly inheritance that will not perish, that will not spoil, that will not fade. And without the first coming of Christ, we have no hope of forgiveness of sin. We have no hope of eternal life. We have no hope of the second coming. We have no hope of heaven as our eternal home. But just like God promised Jesus would come the first time, and he did, God promised Jesus would come a second time, and he will. In fact, there are over 500 hope-filled times that Scripture speaks of the return of Jesus. I was going to share two of them with you this morning, Acts 1, 10 and 11. It says, as Jesus was ascending into heaven, Scripture says, they, meaning the disciples, were intently looking up into the sky as he was going, and when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, Why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. Revelation twenty two twenty, which is next to the last verse of the Bible, says this. He who testifies about these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come. Lord Jesus. You see, what God says he will do is he is faithful to his promises. So we can anticipate with hope, with confident expectation, the second coming of Christ because he came the first time just as God had promised. And make no mistake about it, Jesus is coming again. We don't know when, but we know he is. And he's coming not to save us from the power of sin, He's not coming to save us from the penalty of sin, which he's already done. But this time he's coming to save us forever from the presence of sin so we can live eternally with him in our heavenly home. And Revelation 21.4 says that in heaven there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more death, no more grief, no more pain. You see, when Jesus comes again, he's not saving us from our sin. He's saving us, he's delivering us so we can live eternally with him in a place called heaven. You see, as I was thinking about this message, there was a song that kept coming to mind. It's called Living Hope. 
I want you to listen to these words as I read them. I'm not going to sing them, but as I read them. It says, How great the chasm that lay between us. How high the mountain I could not climb. In desperation, I turned to heaven and spoke your name into the night. Then through the darkness, your loving kindness tore through the shadows of my soul. The work is finished. The end is written. Jesus Christ, my living hope. Who could imagine so great a mercy? What heart could fathom such boundless grace? The God of ages stepped down from glory to wear my sin and bear my shame. The cross has spoken. I am forgiven. The King of kings calls me his own. Beautiful Savior, I'm yours forever. Jesus Christ, my living hope. Then came the morning that sealed the promise. Your buried body began to breathe. Out of the silence, the roaring lion declared the grave has no claim on me. Jesus, yours is the victory. Hallelujah, praise the one who set me free. Hallelujah, death has lost its grip on me. You have broken every chain. There's salvation in your name. Jesus Christ, my living hope. Oh God, you are my living hope the world is desperately looking for hope is there hope in the world yes there's hope in the world hope invaded Bethlehem over 2,000 years ago as Jesus the promised Messiah the Son of God came as an innocent baby went to the cross as the perfect sacrifice rose from the dead and defeated sin Satan and death and 40 days later he ascended into heaven and sent his Holy Spirit to empower and to lead his followers with the promise he would come again. And he is coming again to claim his followers, those who put their faith and trust in him as his own. But when he's coming, when he comes again, he's not going to come as a baby. He's not going to come as a lamb. He's going to come as a warrior and as a lion. He's going to come riding on a white horse with fire in his eyes and a crown on his head wearing a robe dipped in blood with a tattoo on his robe and thigh that reads, King of kings and Lord of lords, with the armies of heaven following him. Jesus is our only hope. Jesus is the wonder of Christmas. Apart from him, we have no hope. Apart from him, we have no reason to celebrate Christmas. And thank God Jesus came the first time to fulfill God's promise to defeat our enemy, to free us from the fear of death and the power of sin, to forgive us of our sin, and to fasten our future glory. And thank God Jesus is coming again. But until he comes, may we live with hope. May we live with confident expectation, knowing he is coming soon. And may the grace of the Lord Jesus be with us all as we expectantly and confidently Await his return. You know, there's no greater gift than Jesus. And the gift of hope that God provided is there for the taking. So I ask you this morning, have you allowed the hope of Christmas? Have you allowed the hope of Jesus to invade your life? Have you placed your hope in him by giving your life to him? If not, you need to do what the shepherds did when they came to the manger the night Jesus was born. And they humbled themselves before him and bowed in faith to him. Don't go through this Christmas season without knowing the hope of Christmas, Jesus.
you've never given your life to him this morning, what a better day to give it to him than today. And if you have given your life to Jesus and placed your hope in him, the greatest thing you can do, the greatest way you can thank Jesus for what he's done for you is by living for him. So I ask you, are you living with hope? Are you living your life like you have victory in Jesus and through Jesus? How often do you thank Jesus for defeating the enemy? How often do you thank Jesus for freeing you from the fear of death and the power of sin? How often do you thank Jesus for forgiving you of your sin? And are you awaiting with confident expectation the return of Christ? This morning as we have our time of commitment as Bill comes to lead us, this altar is going to be open for you. And this morning if you want to place your hope in Jesus by giving your life to him, we'd be glad to show you how you can do that. But maybe this morning, maybe God has shown you something, how he is your hope. And maybe you haven't thanked him enough or maybe you just want to come and thank him. Or maybe there's something you're going through in your life that that to you looks hopeless. But to Jesus, it's not impossible because you can put your hope in him. If you need to pray with me or talk with me, I'll be down here at the front this morning. But let's pray and then we'll sing and we'll have our time of commitment. And this is a time for you to respond to God and how he has spoken to you through his word this morning. And I would just ask that you be obedient to him and doing what he's asked you to do. Let's pray. Father, we just come before you right now. Father, we just thank you for your word. God, we just thank you that you've given us the greatest and perfect gift in Jesus Christ. Father, there is no greater gift. There is no more perfect gift. And Father, we thank you that that Jesus is our hope. And Father, my prayer is that everyone in this room this morning, everyone watching online, Father, has, has taken you into their lives, has given their life to Jesus, has placed their hope in him. And Father, if there's someone here this morning who hasn't done that, I pray today they would make the decision to give their life to you, understanding, God, that you freed them from the power of, of, of death and the power of sin. You've forgiven them of their sin. God, you've secured their future glory, but what they need to do is to take hold of the gift of Jesus by asking him to come into their life. And Father, if they haven't done that this morning, I pray that they would do that. Be the greatest decision they ever made. Father, for those of us who've made the decision to put our hope in Jesus, Father, may we reflect on what it means that Jesus is our hope. God, may we reflect on the reason that Jesus came. And because Jesus came and destroyed our enemy, we don't have to destroy Satan that's already been taken care of. God, because Jesus came, we don't have to fear death. Jesus conquered death. Because Jesus came, we don't have to pay for our sins. Jesus did. And because Jesus came and gave his life for us, Father, we can have abundant life and eternal life. God, apart from Jesus, we can't have any of those things. So God, as we go through this Christmas season, may we remember that Jesus is our only hope. Father, thank you for your word this morning. And I just ask that people would respond in obedience to you. And we just ask all these things in your name. Amen.